143. Over the past couple weeks, we've been spending a little time in this psalm looking at a common thought uh, and uh, carrying this thought through in our preaching. And so with the Lord's help, we'll be doing that again tonight, moving a little further. Psalms 143. Man, what a blessing to get to be here tonight. I'm so thankful to get to be here. We all made it. We didn't drown. Amen. Didn't have to float in on a John boat. Amen. And uh, I'm just thankful to get to be here. Psalms 143. We'll begin reading in verse number one. We'll read down to the end of the chapter. The word of God says, hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. In thy faithfulness, answer me and in thy righteousness and enter not into judgment with thy servant. For in thy sight shall no man living be justified. For the enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He hath made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within me. My heart within me is desolate. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. Hear me speedily, O Lord. My spirit faileth. Hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down into the pit. Cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk, for I lift up my soul unto thee. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. For thy righteousness' sake, bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies. And destroy all them that afflict my soul, for I am thy servant. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here in the house of God. Help us as we approach under your word tonight to approach it, Lord, afresh and anew. Not, not with a perspective as though we've, we've been there, we've read it, we've heard it. But Lord, that we might be sensitive to the leadership and the voice of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you might be able to do a work in us that would change us, that would transform us. That this would not just be what in our flesh we would tend to say is another Wednesday night or midweek prayer meeting night. But Lord, that this moment would be one that we would remember as a moment in which you gained ground in our life, arrested our devotion, and drew us into a closer walk with thee. Lord, we love you. We ask you to bless our time together. And we ask all of it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd remind you tonight as we have moved through this psalm the past couple weeks that this psalm is divided into two portions. Uh, the first six verses comprise the psalmist describing his circumstances. And it's pretty apparent when you begin to read this that he's not in a good way and he's not in a good place. He's struggling with some things. For instance, verses 1 and 2 says this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my supplications. He says, In thy faithfulness answer me, and in thy righteousness. And then he says, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I get the impression distinctly that the psalmist's prayer life is not going the way that he wishes it was. When he says in verse number one, hear my prayer, O Lord, normally you don't have to ask God to do that if you already feel like he's doing that. He asks God to hear his prayer because he feels as though his prayer is not being heard. 
When he says in thy faithfulness answer me. He's invoking the faithful character of God. It's almost as though he's saying you know Lord. There might be things in my life that that are, are, are not blessable. There might be things about me and the things that I've done. That would suggest that you can't answer me. But Lord I'm asking because you are a faithful God. I'm asking you in your faithfulness to answer me. Verse number two, he describes how that if he was called upon to stand on his own merit, that he couldn't because no man could. Man, this is a good verse right here. He says, enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. In other words, he's saying, if I was to stand on my own merit, I'd have nothing to stand upon. Let me just say tonight, man, I'm glad we don't have to get there through our merit because I don't have any. Amen. I don't have any. There's nothing about my life I could point to to suggest is worthy of God's love and of God's attention. It suggests this to me tonight. It was a season of silence in his life, a season when his prayer life was struggling, a time when he was talking to God, but he wasn't getting an answer from God. I would love to be able to inform you, although it would also be news to me if this were true. Uh, I would love to be able to tell you that God will always answer in the way that we wish in the moment that we speak to him. But you and I have been saved long enough tonight, I trust, to know that that's not always the case. And sometimes we go not just through silence on an issue, but through a season of silence where we're just struggling to hear the voice of God. Evidently, the psalmist was dealing with this. Verse 3, he says this, The enemy hath persecuted my soul. He hath smitten my life down to the ground. He said, I just feel beat down. He said, he hath made me to dwell in darkness. Now, it's possible David's writing this from a cave and being in hiding. But that's really not necessary to understand, I think, the larger point he's making. He's not talking about darkness in a in a physical sense, but likely he's talking about darkness in an emotional and psychological and even spiritual sense. And he says this as those that have been long dead. In other words, he says, I'm, I'm struggling, I'm discouraged, I'm disheartened. And he sums it up pretty good at the beginning of verse 4. He says, therefore is my spirit overwhelmed within. You ever felt overwhelmed before? Man, I felt overwhelmed at times. Times when it just felt like I didn't know what to do. Times when the problems just came at me faster than I could even process. And it felt like the, 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 the harder that I paddled, the more that I sank. And, and the more that I, that I strived, the, the worse that things got. We could say this, it was a season of suffering in his life. He's dealing with very real, distinct problems. Man, I'm glad we've got a real God because we have real problems. I mean, problems that can't be spiritualized away. They they demand an answer and they demand help. And I'm glad we've got a God that gives help, real help. He's not like some airport guru passing out flowers and selling motivational packages trying to give us some way to just power a positive thinking our way through life's problems. But we have a God that deals in our life directly, distinctly. I'm glad we've got a God that deals with our problems. It was a season of suffering. But then he says this at the end of verse 4. He says, my heart within me is desolate. Now, don't over-spiritualize what he says there. You know what it means for something to be desolate, for it to be barren, for it to be empty, for it to be unproductive. And he said, you know, my heart right now is just going through a dry, empty phase. We could say it this way. It was a season of staleness. He goes on to describe in verse 5, he says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all thy works. I muse on the work 
of thy hands. I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, Selah. All that language evokes the idea of someone that feels dried up on the inside. Someone that just feels as though all of the robustness, all of the richness of their spiritual walk has been dried up on the vine. They want to be close to God. They they crave to, to fellowship with Him. But it seems like as the psalmist strives to do so, he finds no answer and he finds no relief. All these things describe David's current circumstances. But then beginning in verse number 7, we have the second portion of this psalm. And what David does, and I made this comment I think last week, man, I'm glad the Bible gives us instruction. There's times I don't even know what I need when I need something. And David does something very beautiful, very precious in this passage he begins to ask God to do some things in his life. And I like that because sometimes when I'm in a place similar to where he is, I don't even know what to ask for. And so he begins to just sort of rattle off a succession of requests to the Lord. We've been preaching with this thought in mind, the desires of a distressed heart. The first week we talked about verse 7. The psalmist says, hear me speedily. O Lord, my spirit faileth, hide not thy face from me, lest I be like unto them that go down <coughs> into the pit. The first thing he desired was for his prayers to be heard. He said, if I'm going to get through this, i got to be able to talk to God. And if I'm going to get through this, i got to be able to hear from God. I don't know what you're going through, but I know what you need desperately above all is to be able to talk to the Lord. If you can just get to God, everything else will fall in line. You can talk to him and hear from him. That's step number one. Then verse eight, he says this, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. He doesn't say, Lord, love me. He knows the Lord loves him. But he says, cause me to hear thy loving kindness in the morning. For in thee do I trust. Cause me to know the way wherein I should walk. For I lift up my soul unto thee. And last week we preached on this thought. He's praying and asking for his mind to be sound. He understands the dangers of an unhinged mind in the midst of trials. The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And after, listen, after you've got your prayer life right, because you probably can't do step two till you do step one, till you get your prayer life right, you probably won't be able to get your mind sound. But I would say this, one of the preeminent things you need to be doing is getting your mind fixed on the Lord. You ought to settle some things in your heart and mind. You ought to say some things like, I'm not going to charge God foolish. I'm not going to blame God for things I can't understand. I'm not going to accuse Him for failure when I've not given Him the full amount of time to work. And I'm going to trust Him even though I cannot see what He's doing. He was praying for His mind to be sound. We've not got there yet, but uh, with the Lord's help, eventually we'll get to verse 10. He says, teach me to do thy will. He's asking for His path to be clear. Verse number 11, he says, quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake. He's asking for his faith to be strengthened. But tonight I want you to notice the shortest of these verses. It's verse number 9. Listen to what the psalmist asks for. He says this, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I flee unto thee to hide me. Let me go ahead and tell you tonight, if you're super spiritual, you might as well go ahead and quit paying attention. This message ain't going to be for you, all right? If you're super spiritual and you've learned how to turn this cheek and that cheek and the other cheek and the one after that and three more after that, you probably don't need this message tonight. 
But for those of us that are a little less spiritual and might even be as low as down on the level where King David was, uh, I believe that he's asking for this. He's asking that his enemies be defeated. He has enemies. You have enemies. Uh, Those enemies may be people that are robed in flesh and blood. Likely you do, whether you know it or not. In fact, I would say this. I guarantee you that if you love our country, you have enemies. If you want what's best for our country, you have enemies. But even beyond that, if you could say honestly before the God of heaven, preacher, I got no enemies. You have at least one enemy. You have an adversary. And he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, if you're so spiritual that you'd say, preacher, we ought never pray for our enemies to be overthrown. You can go ahead, just go go warm the car up for us, all right? But for the rest of us, I think it'd be all right tonight to admit that there's nothing unspiritual about wanting those that seek to destroy us to be defeated. Can I tell you something? I want my enemies to be defeated. The psalmist wanted his enemies to be defeated. This might mess up your theology, but God wants his enemies to be defeated. You know how you know that? Because he's going to one of these days. Hey, listen, he's expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. And so the psalmist gives us a little bit of perspective about how we're to pray about this matter of our enemies during these seasons. Notice with me tonight, two statements encompass the psalmist's prayer for deliverance from his enemies. The first is this simply, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. The second, the last half of the verse, he just states, I flee unto thee to hide me. Notice two thoughts not. Notice number one, first there is a simple request in the beginning of this verse. I love it for its simplicity. It's a straightforward request. Deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. Now, I love what this teaches me about what God is able to do and, and hopefully and prayerfully will do. But can I just make a passing statement tonight? This blesses my heart for what it teaches me about prayer. The psalmist does not rise to great levels of eloquence in this request. He doesn't pray, you know, uh, like like some preacher from 400 years ago. He doesn't throw, you know, a thousand these and thous within it. He doesn't wax eloquent about all the wondrous, glorious things regarding the thrice holy, omnipotent God and all of his wondrous wisdom and counsels too awesome to behold or too amazing to set our mind upon. In the midst of trouble, he just simply asks God for what he needs. Man, I'm thankful that prayer can be simple, aren't you? You may be so spiritual that you never pray for anything that you need. But I'd say this tonight, it's not spiritual at all to neglect when we have needs in our life, come to the Lord and just simply asking him to answer. The psalmist has made a number of remarkable and, 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 and powerful statements. But here when he zeroes in, when he, when he sort of, uh, of, of trains the radical upon these enemy, enemies of his, his request is very simple. He doesn't pray for them to be protected because that's not what he desires. He doesn't pray for them to be preserved because that's not what he desires. This is going to mess up your theology. He don't pray for them to get saved because that's not what he needs. What he needs above and beyond everything else is he needs deliverance. And he comes to God. Now, listen, I know there's some people would say, well, you know, preacher, we ought not have that attitude about our enemies. You and David are going to have a lot to argue about when you get to heaven. 
A big chunk of the Psalms, you say, oh, preacher, that's not theological. I can be theological. There's a big chunk of the Psalms, what the theologians would call imprecatory Psalms. You know what an imprecatory Psalm is? That's asking God to smite people. It is biblical to ask God to smite people. Now, here in a few moments, we'll, we'll, we'll unpack some things regarding what he's asking. But I don't think we have to super spiritualize this request. There are people seeking his life. And he comes to God and he doesn't ask for a million different things regarding this issue. He doesn't parse through all of the variabilities and eventualities and possibilities. But he just pours out his heart to God and gives this straightforward request. Lord, deliver me. Can I say I'm glad tonight that God doesn't mind us letting him be God. Sometimes we think if we can't suss out and figure out the right path to a resolution of some matter in our life that we can't pray it in the perfectly appropriate way that somehow it's of no use to pray it at all. But David doesn't bother himself with any of those details. He just has a need and he brings it to God. I notice it's a straightforward request. Let me say number two tonight. I notice that it's a selfish request. Psalmist gives no lofty motives or ambitions regarding this request. He's suffering. And he desires deliverance. You know, the ultimate goal of all things is to glorify God. The book of Ephesians tells us that. That that all things in our life, the reason you exist, the reason you draw breath, is that you might be found under the praise of the honor of his glory. I understand that. But you know, not every request has to have some grand spiritual motivation. I'm going to say that again. Not every request has to have some grand spiritual motivation. You know, maybe we'd pray more if we would quit obsessing over whether our verbiage and sometimes even our motive is perfect and pure. And just come like a child to our Heavenly Father and say, you know, Lord, I don't understand everything, but I know this is what I want and I know this is what I need. And God, I'm asking you for it. We're God's children. He delights to hear our desire. I delight to hear from my kids. Sometimes my kids say dumb things to me. They do. Sometimes my kids, I, it, it, it's pretty rare a child will ever ask for anything that's not selfish. Most of them ask for selfish things. One of the things that's been great is, and, and Amazon's finally started doing it again, but when I was growing up around this time of year, uh, Sears and Pennies would send out these big old fat catalogs. You think about how much money they were getting off people that they could afford to send out tens of millions of those catalogs. Think about that next time you go to Penny's and buy a suit. All right? Think about that. What their margins must be. And I did like most kids. I'd get that magazine and I'd sit down and I'd dog ear and I'd mark things and I'd circle things and then I'd leave it where mom and dad could find it even though I knew good and well there was no chance I was getting anything out of that magazine. I'd still do it nonetheless. And one of the things I've loved, at least here before, about raising my kids, uh, they don't do that. Everything's digital now. My kids ain't got a phone. My kids ain't got a tablet. They ain't got any of that stuff. They don't even know that they sell tablets because they don't even have a tablet to see the advertisement for tablets on. And uh, we don't we don't watch a lot of TV around the house. We ain't again it. There just ain't nothing worth watching on. And uh, so they don't see a lot of commercials. Man, I'm glad they don't. Because the occasional time that I'm watching a college football game, and some commercial come. It don't matter what it is, you know. Daddy, we need MetLife term insurance. It doesn't matter what it is. They want it, man. Whatever it is, 
They want it. They need it desperately. And, you know, they never even think twice about turning around looking at me and saying, Daddy, can we have that? Daddy, can we have that? Never even occurs to them to turn around and try to scam me and explain why it'd actually be good for me to get it. That's their teenage years. I know it's coming. But just in, in their childish simplicity, they don't ever even think about that. Here's what they think. I want that. Actually, what they think is, I need that. And they just turn around and ask for it. I think sometimes our prayer life suffers because we feel as though if we cannot go to God with the most noble of motives, if we cannot somehow twist and warp it into making it seem as though it in some way will redound under the glory of, of God, that we have no business or right asking for it. I'm sorry, I don't see that in my Bible. I don't see that in the spirit and disposition of prayer as it's set forth. In, in regards to, to what our prayer life is and, and what our attitude towards God is. New Testament says we're to cry unto Him, Abba, Father, a term of endearment, a personal, intimate relationship. Uh, you say, preacher, isn't it better if we can find a reason it's for God's glory? Sure. But you shouldn't let it stop you just because you can't find a way to describe it in those terms. Psalmist, he just comes to God and he says, God, I have a need. And I'm asking you to meet that need. I see that it's a straightforward request. I see it's a selfish request. But then notice this. It's a submissive request. I'll tell you how I would have prayed and why I am not King David. I would not have prayed, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. I would have prayed, destroy mine enemies. Now, later on, full disclosure. Later on, the psalmist does say he asked God to cut off his enemies. But in this moment, his request is not, Lord, here's how you can help me best. But rather, it's, Lord, here's my need. And I'm willing to submit myself unto you in whatever means that you seek in bringing this about. The psalmist does not ask for his enemies to be destroyed. He asks that he himself would be delivered. He does not presume to instruct God on the technique or the timing of his deliverance. He's submitted to God's process no matter what it may entail. What a beautiful paradigm, a duality you see here of him being willing like a child to come and say, God, I need this. And he doesn't proffer any argument or any reason or any substantiating perspective other than just, I'm yours, Lord, and this is what I need. But the flip side of that is he doesn't come to God and say, now, God, this is what you're going to do for me. He says, Lord, this is my heart's desire, and now I'm willing to trust you with it. He understands that this issue could not be fulfilled were he not delivered. But he does not presume to go beyond that matter and ask God to do it in a certain way. He's content trusting that God knows what's best in whatever way God fulfills it. Man, it's funny how we do things. We think we have one of two choices. We either don't ask God for anything because we're just nothing but filth and dirt and a worm and don't deserve to pray. By the way, that's true except for grace. Or we want to go to the other side of the ditch and think that prayer means us giving God a to-do list in our life and then anticipating that he's failed us if he doesn't do it in exactly the way that we have asked him to do so. As is often the case, the truth finds the middle, which is this. You ought to be bold in praying about matters. 
But by the same token, you ought to recognize that you don't know all that needs to be known. You don't know everything. You don't know the best way. If you're like me, you rarely know a way. All you know is you have a need in your life. And you go to God and ask Him to meet that need. I love the way he prays here. He's not, he's not, he isn't standing on pretense. He isn't pretending like he's so spiritual that he wants his enemies to be blessed instead of, instead of cursed. He's asking God to do something, but he does recognize that he has to leave this matter up to God and trust that God's process in this will be perfect no matter how God produces it. I see there is a simple <coughs> request. Notice second tonight, and I'll be done. I know you don't believe that, and that's okay. Second though, I want you to notice there is a statement of resolve. He says, first, deliver me, O Lord, from mine enemies. And then he says this. It's not a request. It's not a question. It's just something that he's stating about his attitude and his perspective on this. He says, I flee unto thee to hide me. You know, very often, the reason our prayer life falls flat is because We pray the first part without practicing the second part. We want our options, don't we? We want our contingency plans. But David had no contingency plans. Notice three things about this. Notice, number one, the immediate response. The psalmist forfeit every other avenue of deliverance in preference to the Lord. Presumably, David is at a time in his life, because it's hard to find a time when this was not true of him, or he was surrounded by people that supported and loved him. One of the things about David's life is he rarely moved around without an entourage of people. There was almost always a group of men around him that would have, have risked life and limb and very often did to protect him. Often David, in times of persecution, would flee to natural fortresses and strongholds, caves and rocks and mountains as places where Protection might be found. But underneath all of that, and not necessarily at the exclusion of those things, but David recognizes that at the end of the day, if he's going to have protection from his enemies, it can only come from the Lord. He knows from whence his help come. He had said in the 121st Psalm, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help. Now, lest you think he had some snipers perched up on the ridge line, he tells us, he says, My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. See, we want to ask God to do things without trusting him to do things. We want to say, Now, Lord, I need you to do this. And I'm not necessarily an advocate of idleness. And I'm not suggesting that God can't bless diligence. But I'm saying that very often we'll say, now, Lord, do this in my life. And before we've even got, given God an opportunity to do so, we have immediately taken the matter in our own hands and sought to do it through our own means. David understood if he's going to have protection, it was going to have to come from the Lord. So he did not flee to Abiathar. He did not flee to uh, Joab. He, he did not flee to other men in, in his life that could have protected him. It's not to suggest any of those men were not necessarily around, but he knew that help had to come from the Lord. And his immediate response, it's not to exhaust every other avenue of help and then come to God, but to come to God first and seek God's help in this matter. I notice the immediate response here 
But then I want you to notice with me the immense resource that's found. He says, I flee unto thee to hide me. Psalmist ran to shelter himself in the Lord like a fortress. Here's what he understood. If he inextricably linked his destiny with God's, then he had the greatest refuge that a human being could possibly hope for. If God was his refuge, then his enemies would have to destroy God to get to him. There's a reason that his boy would later on pin down these words. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. In other words, if you have yoked yourself to God in his promises and in his providence, and if you have made God your bulwark, if you have made him your fortress, if you've made him your strong tower, then literally they'd have to destroy God to get to you. He said, preacher, that's a glorious thing, man. I wish I could have that. Well, don't you remember that in the New Testament, the Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Here's the thing that the disciples learned that night on a stormy sea in Galilee is that with the creator of the universe in the boat, it was literally impossible for it to sink. Now you say, preacher, why would I ride in his boat? Because his boats don't sink. Let him run your life. Let him govern your life. Let him guide you. Make his will the preeminent thing in your life. Stay close to him. Walk in fellowship with him because his boats don't sink. You remember the Lord did not look at him and say, thank you for having the faith to wake me. He looked at him and said, why have you so little faith? He rebuked them. Why? Because they had got it in their head that they was getting ready to sink. He said, sink. I'm God. I'm on the boat. If ever there was a time to not worry, man, it's when God's in the boat. And David understands that if, if he can put his faith in God, He has put his faith in the chief preeminent eternal entity in all of existence. The one that always has been and the one that ever shall be. The one that's the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He said, preacher, I don't know what might change in my life. God won't. So if you put your life in his hands, then you can be guaranteed and assured that whatever may come, that he will protect you, that he will watch over you. I see the immense resource But notice this last thing, and I'm done tonight. Notice the intended result. He says, I flee unto thee to hide me. Sometimes we'll say things like this. Lord, why? Lord, why am I going through this? Lord, why did you let this happen? Lord, why did you let them do that to me? I'm sure David at times wondered that very same thing. He's a human being, flesh and and bone, just like you and me. Sure, there were times he thought, why is God letting this happen? But I would imagine that as David pinned these words down, he was struck with the answer to that question. He says this, I flee unto thee. The psalmist realized that through his affliction, though his affliction is unpleasant, it had driven him directly into the arms of the Lord. David would later on say in the 119th Psalm, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now have I kept thy word. If you think what you're facing is scary, you don't want to see what you'd be without it. There's no telling who and what you and I would be 
were it not for some of the limiting, hindering elements that God has permitted into our life. I don't like it any better than you do. But sometimes the biggest barriers, I feel like they're barriers. The things in my own personality, the things in my own character, my own inadequacies and and, and, and weaknesses and infirmities. The things that I think to myself, boy, if I didn't have those, I could really do something for God. Sometimes were it not for those, even if I could do more for him, I wouldn't. Because those are the very things that are driving me to lean upon. Paul learned this truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about a thorn in the flesh. And he had asked God to take it away. And I'm sure that Paul had very spiritual reasons for asking God to take that thorn in the flesh away. I'm sure if he was giving a presentation in heaven as to all the reasons why he'd be a superstar Christian without it, it would have been quite compelling. But God's answer is no, Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee. And Paul then realizes this thing that is a source of grief is also a source of grace. This thing that I thought was holding me back is actually holding me close. And he says this, I will therefore glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When I'm weak, then am I strong. Often we look at that and we think, wonder what that grace was like God gave him. I can tell you what that grace was like that God gave him. It didn't feel like the a supernatural superpower. It didn't feel like the ability to leap tall buildings in a single bound. It was the simple truth and reality that the thing that he detests and loathed so much was actually what God was using to get the most out of his life. You see, the answer was the great. It's not just grace was the answer. The answer was the grace. God telling Paul that in fact this thing that he thought he needed to be relieved of was the very thing that God was using the most in his life. And Paul then with that knowledge clear in his mind is able to say, I don't feel no better, but I'm willing by faith to praise him. I don't feel any relief, but if God tells me that this is here in my life for a reason, then I will purpose and choose to praise him for what he's doing through it. Man, you may be more spiritual than to pray for God to deliver you from your enemies. I love that. I think you're wonderful. I'm proud of you. I want to get you to sign my Bible and get my picture with you. But would you do me a favor then and pray for me to be delivered from mine enemies? Because you may be too spiritual to pray that way. Me and David, we're willing to ask God to do that. And I think you should be willing to as well. Whatever your need is in your life, be it this matter in particular or some other area. Say, oh, preacher, I'm just trusting God with it. If you are, you'll pray about it. Oh, preacher, I'm just too spiritual. You know, I ain't going to complain to God about it. That ain't spiritual. That's ignorant. Talk to God about it. He desires. He begs. He craves for you to talk to him about it. So why don't you meet him down here tonight? If there's some matter in your life, won't you begin tonight and bring that thing to the Lord? Let's bow together this evening. Miss Connie comes to play the piano for us. I want you to have an opportunity to meet God in this altar. God dealt with you about something. Would you slip out of your seat and meet him down here? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.